Hebrews chapter 11, if you want to turn there. I have, uh, I don't know if you've enjoyed it, but I have really enjoyed preaching through the book of Hebrews. And there, there's so much of what's in this book has been transforming to me. But here's the thing. When we started this series a number of weeks ago, I, I knew that eventually I would get to preach Hebrews chapter 11 and chapter 12. And uh, these are two chapters that I'm really, really excited that we're finally here after all these weeks because these are two chapters that have been very formative in my life as a follower of Christ. These are two chapters that have meant a lot to me. You, you know, uh, most of you already know chapter 11 because we call it the faith chapter. And, uh, and it's, a, it's all about faith and, and it's a powerful, powerful chapter. Chapter 12 um, it's, it's, it's really powerful in a different way. It talks about running the race, but then chapter 12, there's a part in there that we don't get as excited about, uh, because it talks about the discipline of the Lord. How many of you here get excited when you hear about discipline? Uh, yeah, if you do, you, you need to get some help. <laughs> That's all I can say, because something, something not wired right or something, I don't know. But anyway, uh, I, I'm really excited. And to, we're finally going to dive into it today. We're going to Dive into Hebrews chapter 11 today, and I'm so excited about it. And so what I want you to do is turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, because, we're, and I know that sounds odd to say all that, but we're going to start there in order to work into Hebrews 11, uh, because I think there's some information there. There's something there that helps us understand what Hebrews 11 is really all about, and I think you'll understand momentarily. But uh, while you're turning there, would you just bow your head and let's, let's pray together? Father, I, I just thank you for today, and I, and I just pray, Lord, Lord God, that right now you would, you, you would stir the hearts of your people towards you, that you would spark something in us, and, and, I, 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 and Lord, I, I think this will make more sense in a few minutes, but I pray for, a, for discontentment, for a, a great deal of discontentment in the hearts and the lives of, of your people, Lord God, and, and I pray that because I think, Lord, that's the foundational element of faith, and I just pray that you would speak to us. Help us today, God, and because we need your help. We, we can't get this on our own. We need your help. And it's in your beautiful, strong name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 8. It says this. It's a very, very famous passage of Scripture. You probably have it memorized. It says, for by, what's the word? For by grace you have been saved. Now, I just want to say this, that you, 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 if you're a regular here, you'd better get that. You, you should understand that because we have done nothing for weeks except teach that we have been saved by grace. That's what we've talked about week after week after week. And so if you don't get that right there, then, then I hope that you're a guest today. Otherwise, I will be the greatest failure in the history of all the preaching world and the history of the world. But, uh, but, but, but we have done nothing for weeks but talk about the death of the tabernacle system and talk about the birth of the new covenant where Jesus Christ pays the, the, the whole bill. Which means then... That, that your good works and your efforts and your church attendance, you cleaning yourself up, you cleaning up your mouth, uh, all these things, you trying to do good things and avoid bad things does not give you right standing before God. And we know very clearly, not just from Hebrews in our study here, but all throughout the New Testament, we understand that the cross of Christ alone gives you right standing with God. It's what Jesus has done. There is nothing that you've done to make yourself acceptable to God. You have 
There's no merit that you have. You have nothing of value to offer to him. There's nothing you can bring to God. There's nothing that you could lay on his altar that God would look at and say, oh, I didn't have one of those. Thank you. (laughs) Because he's got it all. You have nothing. Christ has everything and he imparts it to you. But it doesn't stop right there in that verse. So let's keep reading. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is where it ties into Hebrews 11. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It is, a, it is not a result of works so that no one may boast. So by grace, you have been saved through the faith to believe in that grace. And, and that's why we're saved. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And he's saying, why are you pretending that you did this? Why are you pretending that you did anything to get saved? Why are you pretending that your work saved you at all? Why are you pretending like you didn't just receive it as a free gift? And this is just another attack on the arrogant style of Christianity that would say, look at me, look how good I am, look look at my good works. And Because God, for the record, is saying to us, You are not attractive. You're not attractive. I am immensely attractive. That's God, not me, by the way. I want to make sure that really clear. Um, He says, I'm infinitely beautiful. You are not attractive. And the reality is, the more we point to ourselves, the more we point away from God and we dirty up this whole thing. God is saying, you've been saved by my grace through faith, not by your petty little works, lest you you should start boasting in you. And then, honestly, this next verse in Ephesians really doesn't have a lot to do with where we're going today, but, but it's just one of my favorite little bits in Scripture, so I want to talk about it for just a minute anyway. Look at verse 10. It says, for we are his, what's the word? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you, do you know what that, what that, did you know that the Greek word that's translated workmanship is the same Greek word that's used for masterpiece? It's also used for poetry. Did you know that? It just said that we are God's poetry. And, and you, know, you know why I love that so much? Because poetry is is birthed out of out of emotion it's birthed out of a powerful moment i mean poetry is always birthed out of a great deal of pain or or sorrow or joy i mean nobody writes a poem about a plain ordinary day right i mean the poem is always about this epic thing that happened this great love that you found this great sorrow that you experienced the poem is always about these big great moments that transcended in uh, the the ordinariness of life and So you experience a joy or a sorrow that sort of transcends language. And so you write poetry or you or you write music or you or you watch a romantic comedy, something. I don't know. Uh, But but I, I mean, it just moves beyond just mere ordinary words. And what just happened here is it said that the love of God was so big and so huge within God that it overflowed out of him. And we are his poetry. We are his masterpiece that he's written for the world to see. Anyway, that's such a great text. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but I just wanted to share it with you anyway. Uh, This is a little rabbit. I won't chase it anymore. Let's get back to the point at hand. By grace you have been saved. Now, as I said, you should know grace by now. We've talked about grace nonstop, but, but the big question, the one that we've really been wrestling with over the last several weeks 
is why is it that so many of us can define grace and so few of us can live in it? I mean, that, that becomes the big question. Why is it that so many of us have this intellectual understanding of the doctrine of grace and so few of us live in the freedom of it and the beauty that it brings? And, and it's because there is a second piece to this puzzle. And, and, and we've, we have gone now through 10 chapters of Hebrews over many, many weeks now, and there has been no mention of the second piece. And now... For the next couple of weeks, we're just we're really going to attack it. We're going to really jump in with both feet. Because Paul says, and I believe it was Paul. Well, he says in Ephesians 2.8, we know it was Paul there. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So when we read that, it, it, it seems that faith is the spark that ignites grace in the souls of men and women. That the grace is there. The grace of God is offered but the faith in our hearts is what sparks that to, 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 to do something else. And when faith takes root in the heart, grace then is awakened and it comes alive in the souls of men and women. Now that sounds really, really great to us. But here's the problem that we face when we talk about faith. The problem is in Webster's Dictionary alone, and by the way, that's not... For those of you that have been around a while, that's not the little short guy on the TV show. Uh, it's a different guy. It's Daniel Webster. But Webster's Dictionary alone, there are like 17 different definitions of the word faith. I mean, there's, there's so many definitions and so many ideas of what faith is it, that it becomes very, very difficult to talk about faith because you may be talking about one thing and somebody else is talking about something completely different and, and, and it becomes very difficult to talk about faith igniting grace in the souls of men unless, unless somewhere in the Bible it defines faith for us. Hebrews chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 1. We're, we're only going to do seven verses of Hebrews 11 today. and Let me just tell you what the seven verses are. We're going to see a definition of faith. Then we're going, to, we're going to see three short stories, very, very short encapsulations of stories from the Old Testament. The first story is going to be a story of warning, and the next two are, are, are what grace, after it's been enabled and ignited by faith, ignite at what it creates in the hearts of men and women. So we're going to define it, then we're going to, and, and we're going to see a word of warning, and then we're going to hear how it's, what it stirs up, what it creates in us, and, and that's really, really good news today. So I, I, I promise you now... The warning we're going to deal with is very heavy, it's very scary, but the other two are easier to hear. So starting in verse 1, let me just read the first seven verses through, and then we'll go back through and look at them. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he has commanded us as, as righteous, uh, through which he was commanded as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. 
By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. All right, now, let's go back to verse 1. And, and we're going to define faith. It, it, it has a, a number of parts. Part number 1, look, look at verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things. And what are the, what are the next two words? Things hoped for. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now I'm going to say something, and this may seem like it's coming just like out of, a little bit out of left field, but hang in there with me for a few minutes and, and you're going to understand what I'm talking about. Here's the statement that may sound so odd to you in, 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 on, the, on the surface. The foundational element of faith is a discontented heart. The foundational element of faith is a discontented heart. Let, let me explain what I mean. To hope in something or to hope for something means that there is a level of discontentment with the way things are right now. Right? You don't hope for things that already are. Paul talks about this in other places. If there is hope in you for anything, it's because the current state of things you have found to be unsatisfactory. So if you hope that your marriage becomes this thing, then, then you're hoping, uh, what you're hoping for, it, it, it is not in that state now, right? It, so if you're hoping it becomes this thing, you're hoping it because it's currently not that. You tracking with me? I know that was kind of a confusing way to say it. Uh, but if, if you hope, for example, here's a better example. If you hope that one day you will get married, it's because you're not married right now, Right? I mean, if that's not right, then you need to seek some counseling because if you're married and you're hoping to get married, then we've got some issues to work through there. Something's not right there. You don't understand how something that has happened and transformed in your life, you know. If you have, if you have this hope that one day you'll have more money, it means you are discontented with the amount of money you have right now, right? Anybody understand that one? Yeah, yeah, we get that. It, it is the realization that, that we here in America, although we are well-fed, we are well-clothed, we are safe, we are protected, there are hospitals and police at our fingertips, despite the fact that we have, we have all that we need to live very well in life, there is there's that realization that there is something gnawing at us saying something is missing. There's got to be more than just this. And that's what I mean when I say discontentment is the foundational element of faith. Because you don't have faith for something you already have. Without discontentment, there is no hope for something more. You know, listen, whenever people talk about the wrath of God and things like that, you know, people, they always want to frame it in terms of like natural disasters. Oh, it's a wrath of God. You know, even insurance, they say it's an act of God or whatever. Or we think of, you know, wrath of God being some supernatural thing that God does, like, like fire falling out of the sky and blowing somebody up, which, which I don't know what it says about me, but I think that'd be actually kind of cool to see just once. You know, I, I don't know, not, wouldn't be good for that person. I'm not saying I want it to happen, but it would be very, I mean, you talk about special effects. I mean, I'm going to move ahead. I, 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 well, here's the thing. I submit that if it is true that without discontentment, there is no hope for, for something more, then, then 
Could it not be that the wrath of God is to make you wealthy, healthy, and comfortable? Could that not be the worst thing to ever happen to you that God just gives you what you want and not what you need? How many of you have ever, ever uh, talked to God later looking at your life in hindsight and, and you said, Lord, thank you for not giving me what I wanted? Oh man, there are many times I've prayed that. I, and, and, and so I'm just saying that, that if, if, I, uh, if uh, having everything I want causes me not to hope for something more, then that means I have no reason to have faith for something more. And therefore, the wrath of God could be God saying, like he says in Romans chapter 1, his, the wrath of God could be him saying, all right, you want all these other things so much more than me, I'm going to give them to you and you're going to reap the benefit, you're going to reap the, 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 the judgment that comes from pursuing those things. So, I just, you know, honestly, I find it hard to grasp how many men and women in our culture are perfectly content living the life of a, of a pampered dog. And listen, I know pampered dogs. We have one. We have a little Pomeranian. And, and people say, man, it's a dog's life. And I look at them and say, I wish. I mean, that dog has it made. Anybody, anybody have a dog that's like that or, or a cat or another pet you've got that you just think you, you look at that and you realize, man, that dog lives way better than I do, you know, but, but how many of us are content with just living the life of a pampered pet? You know, I'm going to eat a little bit. I'm going to, I'm going to sleep a little bit. I'm going to amuse myself playing with my toys and then I'm going to hope that I die good. Right? Like I just get old and somebody takes me to the doctor and they give me a shot and I just go to sleep forever. And what blows my mind is how many of us, even as Christians, are perfectly content just chasing our tail. Having a good time but not really doing anything. Discontentment is the foundational element of faith because it screams out from our gut that there's something more. There's something more. And listen, I, I, I'm not saying that we should be discontent in Jesus. We are, we are to, there's contentment with godliness as great gain. I'm not talking about being discontented with what you have in life. I'm not saying that you should be discontent and say, man, Jesus is just not enough for me. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is when you taste him and you see how good he is, that suddenly that's, there's this insatiable, insatiable hunger that takes over in your life where you say, man, I've tasted this, but this is not enough I've got to have more of Jesus I know that there's something more for me I know I can grow more I know I can know him more I know he can change me more I know I can make a bit, bit a bigger difference in this life that's the kind of discontentment that releases faith that's what leads us to hope where we say I hope I hope my life matters I hope my life counts I hope that I can make a difference for Christ in this world that's what I'm talking about without that longing for the fullness of life that God promised, there will never be faith, which means that grace never gets activated. All right, that's just the foundation. Let's put up the walls and then we're going to put up the roof. Let's put up the walls. Verse number six, look at that with me. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Here, here's the second part of what happens in faith discontentment 
leads the way to, and leads us into the place where we draw near to God. It begins with a discontented spirit. There's something more. We feel that there's got to be something more. We, we feel that, there, that there's something invisible. There's some greater authority out there. There's something out there and it's unseen. And we begin to long for that something more. And then we want that and that leads us to Jesus. And then we begin to draw near to God. We begin to draw near to Christ discontentment leads the way to drawing near to God. When we, by the way, I'm going to say this, when we approach it properly, if we keep trying to fill the discontentment with temporary things, all it's going to do is going to deepen that cycle and we dig it more and more into our very being where all we're doing is saying, if I just get that thing, or if I have that, or if I have more money, if I have a better, a better relationship, or I have this, or I have that, then that, that longing, that gnawing will be fulfilled and it's just not going to work. So when we have that discontentment that says there must be something more, the answer is then that's what leads us to begin to draw near to Jesus because we say, He's what I need. He's what I need. If I don't have any of those other things, he's what I need. He's what I need. So discontentment then leads the way to drawing near to God. Now, here's the thing. I, I know that there are some in this room that you, you just, you like got saved right out of the womb. You know, like you came out of the womb, the doctor slapped you and you're like, Jesus and you're in, you're right, you know, and you've had that testimony your whole life and that's it and, 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 and it just went that for, fast for you and I'm not knocking that testimony at all. In fact, that's for years, that's the, what I've been begging Christ for to be the testimony for my own daughters and I, I know some of you have that story and you, you really can't remember the discontentment or that sort of thing but for those of you in this room and there are many in this room who got saved later on in life your salvation was birthed out of discontentment. We knew something was wrong. We couldn't, maybe we couldn't point it out. Maybe we didn't know what it was, but there was just something that was not settled and it led us to Christ and we drew into him and we pressed into him. Now I want you to notice something about verse four. I'm gonna read it. He says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain offered. Through this, he was approved as righteous with God, testifying concerning his gifts. He still speaks through his faith, though he is dead. It says that Abel offered a better sacrifice than his brother Cain. The question is, what made his sacrifice better? And some people, you know, I've heard some people say in times past, they say, well, Abel, he brought, a, a she, he brought a, a, an animal, so it was a blood offering. And Cain, he brought fruit of the, of the earth, so it was, a, you know, the grapes and vegetables or whatever it was. And they say that was why he was accepted, but that's not right at all because, because there are other places in the New Testament where God actually told them to bring from the harvest, to offer those sort of things, to offer produce, the fruit of the land to the Lord. So it wasn't because it was the wrong kind of sacrifice. We, I mean, was, was Abel's sacrifice fresher to God? Was it better? You know, did God reject Cain's sacrifice because it was flawed in some way? No, the real reason we're told, that we're told right here in this verse, the reason Abel's sacrifice was accepted was because of faith. That's what it said. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. It was because of faith. He had faith in God before he ever brought the sacrifice. 
You see what he's saying there? He, he, his sacrifice was offered as a result of his faith in God, but Cain's sacrifice was rejected because he was trying to buy his way into God's favor. Here's the real lesson for you and I today. You ready for this? Here's the lesson. You and I do not get to decide how we come to God. You ever heard, ever heard somebody say, well, you know, someday in my life later on when, when things settle down, when I get past sowing my wild oats a little bit, then I'll come to God. No, no. You don't get to come when and how you want to come. Jesus said no man comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. So, so you don't get to come. If you feel the Spirit drawing you to, to Jesus in your life, you need to take advantage of that. You need to listen to that and respond to that because you don't get to come to God the way you want to. You, you, know, you don't get to say, well, I'll, I'll quit doing this and I'll start doing this and, and he should have to accept me if I do good things. There, there is one way and one way alone to come to God and that is through the cross of Christ as he offers his blood for your sin and my sin to pay the penalty for our sin. There's no other way. No, there are no offerings that are being accepted. You don't get to decide how you come to God. And, and here's the thing. I, I promise you, if you're watching this on live stream or you're here, I, I'm not trying to be arrogant about this. I'm, what I'm trying to do is plead with you. Because if you're hearing this and you think to yourself, well, that's just, that's just not fair. It's just not fair. Well, okay. Who are you going to tell about it? Who, who, what court are you going to take God to? How, who, how are you going to appeal this uh, before anybody? Who gets to judge God? You? Me? Look at verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Here's what that tells us. As the creator... He has the last word. As the creator, you know, like if you invented a game and you, and you said, here are the rules of the game, you get to make up the rules if you, made it, if you made the game, right? Nobody can come to you later and say, those are stupid rules. You should change the rules. You say, hey, I made the game. It's my game. I own the game. The rules will be whatever I say they are, Right? And anybody else that comes and says, but that's just not fair, you say, I don't know what's not fair about it. It's mine. I made it. I created it. And that's the way we have to understand. There, there, he's the creator. Therefore, he has the last word. There's no court to which you can go. There's, there's no one to whom you can complain. You, you're left only with two options in response. You can shake your fist at him like you're going to show him one day, which is going to lead you to this very horrific moment for you in your future. Or you can believe and receive the gift. And, and I'm afraid... That for a lot of us, because, because I, I, I think that although we come to church on the weekends, some of us were still buying into the balancing scale theory. Thinking that our good is outweighing our bad, and that's why God will accept us. Here's, here's the problem with that. The Bible says that sin cannot exist in the presence of God. So you can do... 99.9% .9 good and 0.1% sin. 
you can't enter the presence of God. You can't. Because he's a holy God. And if he lets it in, he's no longer holy. It denies who he really is. And, and so, so the problem with, with all of this thing is that even if you do all these good things and you say it's going to outweigh, it's going to outweigh it. But the problem is to, to, to go into the presence of the Lord, you have to have that evil, you have to have that bad removed. And you can't do that. You can't do that. Like we know, we all know everybody here is going to agree that telling a lie is a sin, right? Right? How many of you have told a lie? All right, bunch of, bunch of liars. Hey, I'm the king of, of the liars. I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, when I was younger, that's, that's, I, did, I lied so much I didn't even know what the truth was anymore, which always that's, amazes me, and, and uh, the grace of God amazes me all the more because after being the, the liar of all liars, he called me and he said, now I want you to stand up and speak truth. It's just amazing. Just amazing. But here's, here's the point I was going to make. Um, once you tell a lie, can you ever untell it? No, you can tell the truth later. You can confess it. You can make things right. But you cannot change the reality that you told a lie. But when we come to Christ and he forgives our sin, he washes it all away. And in the eyes of God, he looks at you and says, you've never told a lie. It's gone. You're clean. You're a truth teller. It's amazing. And, and you can't do that. Only, only Christ can do that. And, 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 and so, you know, God is saying to us, listen, I don't, I don't take offerings anymore. You don't get to decide how you come to me and when you come to me. I made the way. I made the way. And listen, you know, in human understanding, the, the free gift of Christ almost sounds insane, doesn't it? I mean, uh, and the reality is that this free gift of Christ is the one difference between what we believe and what all other world religions believe. Because other world religions to get to God, you have to do something. You earn your way. You have to do this. You have to, you know, pray three times a day. You've got to keep these rules. You've got to do this, and you've got to earn your way to God. And that's the way it is in, in all the other religions. But, but it's not so with Christianity. But, but did you know, by the way, did you know that there are other religions that have gods that, that they believe that they had a God that died for people? There are other, other religions that have that belief. There, there are other religions that, 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 uh, that believe all the, that they believe that, God, that their God came in the flesh. There are other religions that believe that. Other religion, religions believe all these other pieces, but what they don't have is, is a God that pays the bill completely. No other religion believes that. We believe that Christ paid the bill once and for all. So this is the word of warning for us. By faith, we come as he calls us, not according to our own dictates. That's the warning. He's saying, don't, don't try to barter with me. Don't try to pretend. Don't try to, you know, uh, argue with me because you're in no position to do any of those things. There's no court to which you can go to where you, to, to where you can take God to where his ruling is going to be overturned. And I, I know that's heavy, but that's the truth. Okay, two more stories. And now these are going to help. These are going to be much more encouraging. All right. Verse five. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death 
and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was command, commended as having pleased God. Okay, now here's the story. If you're not where, familiar with it, you can go look it up. You can find it in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, there's this man named Enoch. And Enoch, when he was 75 years old, he met God. And they, in this very strange and, and way, a way that we don't fully understand, I don't think, became friends. And in fact... He's always walking with God and talking with this unseen person, which, by the way, when you're a, a, a toddler, that's okay because you're like talking to your invisible friend. But when you're 65, doo -doo, you know, a little, little, little off there. And so anyway, he just walks around and talking with God. And one day, according to the Bible, he just vanishes. A guy named Ray, Ray Stedman explained it like this. He said, it was like he went for a walk with God, and when they finished their walk, God said, hey, we're closer to my house than yours. Why don't we just go there? So Enoch just disappears. But he never dies. He's one of, one of, of just two people in, the, in the, all, all, of, all the history of mankind who never died. But here's the lesson for us in Enoch. This is so awesome. The lesson for us here is that through faith in God, death loses its sting. Death loses its sting. By faith, death is no longer our enemy, but it is merely the consummation of our time here. It's the, it's the time that marks the ending of what God has called us to be and what he's called us to do. The time that he's given us here on earth is just the ending. It's more of a doorway for us to step from this life into his presence. You know, one of my favorite verses in the in scriptures is found in Acts chapter 13. And, and what it says is this. It's talking about King David. And it says uh, in verse 36, for David... After he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. I love that. Which, by the way, that's a really nice New Testament way of saying he died. You know, listen, we, we talk about death and these sort of things. It's always been kind of funny to me. I used to travel a lot more. I remember there was a time when I was working on my master's degree, had to fly every month. And it was funny because I'd be getting ready to go on a trip on an airplane and and people would be wishing me well or whatever the Sunday after service. They know I was flying out the next morning or whatever. And they'd look at me and they'd say, be careful. And it just always kind of tickled me. You know, because it's like, well, I don't know what I can do on the airplane. I'll, I'll, I'll buckle up, you know. That's, there we go. All right. That's all I, but listen, the truth is, if the pilot gets in trouble, I don't know what, what I'm going to be, what help I'm going to be there, you know. But I'll buckle up. I mean, I just don't know what else I can do. So it's always kind of funny to me. Be careful. I guess I'll be careful not to trip on my way into the airplane. That's all I can do. That's all I can do. But here, here honestly, here's how I look at life. And I, those things, when they say, be careful, you know, they're on this trip or whatever. I don't know they're just saying, hey, we want you to come back home. That's the whole thing. But, but what I think of it like this. When I'm done, I'm done. Right? And I know people hear something like that, and, you, and you know, when you have children, they say, man, how can you say that? Don't, don't you have kids? Well, yeah, I do, but they're not really mine. They're, they're not mine. He, they're, my girls are his, and he loaned them to me. And I'm so unbelievable, I'm unbelievably grateful that he gave them to me and put them in my life. But the truth is, if my time came, he'll be a better father to them than I could ever be. Well, what about all the stuff you would miss out on? 
Okay, well, you know, I want to see Halloween ends as bad as everybody else, but no, I'm just kidding, by the way. I don't, I don't know if y'all don't want to see that, but, but, but in comparison, are, are you kidding me? Do I want to trade fulfilling the very purpose for which I was create, created for, for what? For to be at my daughter's wedding? Now, listen, don't get me wrong. I so want to be there. So desperately want to walk my, my girls down the aisle. So desperately want to love and hate the dudes they're marrying. You know, I want to be, I want that opportunity to be able to, you know, pull one of them aside and say, don't hurt her. You know, I just, I just want, I want to be there. I want to do that thing. But, but you know what? More than anything else, I want to live the full purposes of Jesus. And then when he's, when he's done with me, I, I want to go home. I just want to go home and be with him. So, so Enoch had faith. And because he, because he had faith, death was not an issue for him. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You see, by, by faith, death ceases to be the enemy and starts to be the friend. Death ceases to be something to be afraid of. And it becomes something that I look, look at and say, hey, I don't want to go early. But when the time comes, I want to step through. Because I know there's something more. There's something better on the other side of that door. All right, one more. Verse 7. This is, I love this one. I love this one. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and become, became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, here's the truth, and I've said this before. I think that the story of Noah has lost a lot of its weight because it became a children's fable. You know, for the life of me, I cannot figure out why we have made pajamas out of the moment in history, a moment in time where God killed everyone on earth. You know, it's just, is it just to scare our kids into submission? Is that what we're doing there? You know, why are those sheep going into the boat, daddy? Well, because God kills sinners, sweetheart. You know, and God killed everyone once and it was hideous. Do you want to pray? You do, don't you? You know, that was just, it's, it's just kind of a weird thing. But think about this, though. Noah built, starts building a boat 500 miles from the nearest ocean and a thousand times too big for his own family. And he starts filling it with animals. <laughs> I'm glad somebody laughed at that because it's kind of laughable. Are, are you with me here? Noah started building a, a boat a thousand times too large for his family, 500 miles away from the ocean. Why did he do it? Because God told him to. Absurd! It was absolutely absurd. Oh, that we would have faith like Noah to follow the absurd. I want to tell you about Lillian Trasher. You know, I have a lot of, I never met her. She was gone long before I ever, ever knew much about her story. But there's so many uh, who have gone before us that are some of my heroes. Well, she's, she's a hero to me And when I, when I heard her story. Lillian, Lillian Trasher was, which, uh, was born in, in Boston to a Quaker family that moved to Georgia uh, after the U.S. Civil War. 
When she was a child, some neighbors told her that she could have a true relationship with Christ and she believed them. And, and as a young girl, she, she went out in the woods and she prayed a simple prayer. She said, Lord, I want to be your little girl. And then she added some bold words and she said, Lord, if there's ever anything I can do for you, just let me know and I'll do it. Well, while she was in her late teens, she attended uh, Bible college for one term and then she worked in an orphanage in North Carolina and she met a man named Tom and she felt sure that, she, that he was to be her husband. And they got engaged and, and, then, and, and, and they were planning the wedding. And then 10 days before their planned wedding, she heard a missionary from India speak. And she knew that God was calling her to be a missionary. And she found out, she talked with, uh, with her fiancé, Tom, about it and realized that he had no calling like this whatsoever on, her, on, on his life. So sobbing bitterly, she abandoned her marriage plans and told Tom she was going to Africa. In that same year of 1910, she defied her family's wishes and sailed to Africa along with her sister Jenny with less than $100 in her pocket. Arriving in Egypt, Lillian had little idea what she was going to do. You know what? It was an absurd thing to do. Well, one night uh, around midnight, a man knocked on, on her door and she, he was looking for someone to come, come pray with a dying woman. And Lillian accompanied the man along with a, an interpreter. Uh, and she went with him having no idea what she would find. Well, she found a poor widow who was dying. Lillian's heart was moved with compassion when she discovered that this young mother had a three-month-old baby girl who was so hungry that she was trying to drink spoiled milk from a dirty tin can. Well, as Lillian picked up the child, the mother who was dying saw the love and the care and the, care and the compassion that Lillian showed toward her child, and she said, please take her, and then she died. Well, for 12 days... And nights, Lillian tried and, and, and to take care of this baby, and the baby just howled. It was absolutely unbelievable that a malnourished child could cry so loudly and so persistently. And pretty soon, all the other missionaries' patients who were, were living there in the compound, they, their, mission, their patients wore out, and the senior missionary came to her and, and ordered Lillian to take the baby back. But, but take the baby back where? There's no family left. There's no one to take the baby to. And so, so Lillian decided that, that she was going to take the baby back, but she was just going to go back with the baby. And her superior wondered how she was going to do this alone. An American woman, unmarried in an Arab world. He just was convinced that she would either be killed or she would starve to death. It was absurd. It was absurd. Well, Lillian knew that she wouldn't be alone because she knew God would be with her. And with the $60 she had left from her traveling, she rented a small house, bought a kerosene stove for cooking and some furniture, and now she had no money left. She was alone because by now her sister had returned to the United States and, and her mission board support was terminated, but she had confidence in God. It was absurd. Since Lillian had no means of support, she begged. Her first donation was 35 cents, which in that day was enough for that day's, that day's food. She traveled on a donkey, pleading for money, and many times, instead of receiving money, she got more children. 
It was absurd. By 1916, Mama Lillian was caring for 50 children. To care for this many children, she bought half an acre of land on the east bank of the Nile River. And over the years, more people heard of her work and more donations of money and material began coming. And the home just grew and grew and grew and grew. And one night when the Egyptians rose up against the British ruler, she had to move her children from the orphanage into a brick kiln. Just a place where they could hide. And, and when they got there, she counted the heads of all the kids and realized that two children were missing. Well, against the protest of her fellow workers, she crawled back to the orphanage and found the two terrified toddlers. And tucking a child under each arm, she slowly began to make her way back to the kiln. And suddenly as she was making her way back, the rebels blocked her path. They were coming and she realized there was no place to go. She had to drop into a ditch where she fell. As she dove into the ditch, she, she fell upon a dead soldier. She muffled her horror because any scream in that moment would have brought death to her and to this, those two babies. Well, the soldiers marched closer and closer and closer. They got there to the point where they, where they were, and one of the soldiers actually even stepped on Lillian. But he assumed she was dead, and he just kept moving. While Lillian waited, trying to calm those two little toddlers, she softly sang, Jesus loves me, in the ears of those babies. When the danger had passed, she then crawled to safety with, uh, with those children and with the other staffers and the other children. And on her 25th anniversary in Egypt, Lillian wrote that God had never failed her in all those years. She said that they were fed like sparrows, which have no barns and no storehouses. You know what? During her lifetime, with this absurd faith, Lillian Trasher cared for 25,000 Egyptian children. 25,000. And today the Lillian Trasher Orphanage is one of the largest and finest permanent orphanages in the world. Oh, praise God for the faith to follow the absurd. And listen, God's going to call you. He's calling me. He's calling this church to absurd things. That a handful of people in Marion, Arkansas could have an impact on a city, on a state, on a nation, on a world. That's absurd. That a, that a young man could be set free from drug addiction and, and have his life completely turned around almost overnight. And, and that God could use him to touch the lives of other people. That's absurd. People don't do that. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. God wants to do the absurd. Because when he does things like that, nobody can look at it and say, ah, well, it was just chance. It was just coincidence. But when God raises up this church, when he raises you up, a nobody in the middle of your workplace or in the, in the middle of Walmart or in a parking lot somewhere, when he raises you up and he says, I want you to do this, and you think to yourself, man, that is loony. That's just absurd. Just know if you, have, you can have faith to, to act on the absurd. God's going to do something. God's going to do something. But you know what? It starts with us having faith in a God who's big enough to do what seems absurd. 
Can somebody say amen? amen? My prayer for you is that you would embrace discontentment. Don't fear it as an enemy, but let it become a friend that drives you toward Jesus. That when you feel that, that gnawing in your heart that says there's something more, that you'll say, I know, I know who is something more, and that is Jesus. And you'll press in all the more. Quit beating yourself up over your restlessness. But I pray that that restlessness will push you into Him. And that there in Him, you would find the assurance of the hope that started you on this journey in the first place. Remember Abel. You don't get to decide how you come. Remember Enoch. May death not be your enemy, but your friend. And last of all, like Noah, may you be freed up to follow the absurd, to live in the loony. Because you know what? With Noah, the rain eventually fell and waters rose and a slew of men and women who thought they got to decide how they came to God were on the outside of nutty Noah's boat. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for our time together today. And Lord, you, you are more beautiful and, and deeper and more spectacular than I did justice today. I did my best, but God, you're just so big that I just think it's really impossible. I pray now for my brothers and sisters who, who have been so frustrated because they're so discontented, and I pray, God, that they would quit looking at that as some kind of enemy, and they'd quit trying to fill that, that discontentment with the things of this world, but, God, that they would allow it to lead them to you. I pray, God, that we might say things like King David said when he said, as the deer longs for the, for the water, so I, I yearn for you. He said, I yearn for you. I long for you. I thirst for you. I've got to have you. I pray, God, that we would begin to echo Moses when he said through tears, show me your glory, God. Show me your glory. I pray that, that we might want to join the chorus of the Apostle Paul who said, oh, I want to know him. I want to know him. I pray, God, that a holy discontentment that drives us to you might be birthed in our heart and that we would, we would quit, quit running from it and, and we quit trying to medicate it and quit trying to fill it with temporary things. I pray, God, that that discontentment would lead us to draw to you and, and in drawing near to you, God, that we might find assurance and peace that, but, that, but, but that that longing there would never disappear until the day that we're home, that we'd always want more of you. I thank you, God, for the work that we get to do while we're here. But, Lord, we also long for home. And we look forward to the day where the constraints of this body are no longer on us. So, God, just increase our faith today. Activate the grace that we've all heard of. And I pray that all across this room today that prayers might go up for you to increase our faith. And We, we cry out to you today. Give us faith. Give us faith in you. Give us faith to believe. Give us faith to follow the absurd, oh God. We love you. But Lord, we're still, still broken and we're still prone to wander. But we love you. And where, we, where that love has grown cold or stale, Lord, I just think even in those places, we want to love you more. 
I pray, God, that you would just wake up something in our hearts. That there'd be a new longing that we realize that I'm chasing the wrong things to fill that discontentment that's in my soul. God, we would begin to chase after the eternal to fill that eternal hole. And that that discontentment that's in our lives would lead to faith and would lead to hope. We'd press into you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, and there's nobody looking around. I, I, I don't know where anybody is with the Lord. No way I can know that. I have a pretty good idea, maybe, because I can see the fruit of your life, but even those things, I, you can fool me. I can fool you. So I don't know where anybody is. But I don't know, maybe there's somebody here today that would say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. Maybe we'll just start here. We'll just say, Pastor, pray for me because I've got a discontentment and I think maybe I've been trying to fill it with the wrong things and I just, I just want to start chasing after Jesus today. If that's you, would you slip your hand up so I can pray for you? Yes. Yes. Anybody else? Yes. Oh, they're all over the place. Yes. That's, that's the starting place. That's the starting place where we find hope where we find peace. There's some of us in this room that we've just been chasing all the wrong things. But I want to ask another question. How many of you here with me would say, Pastor, I want to ask God to give me the faith to follow the absurd. That those crazy ideas, the the loony things that God asks us to do, the things that seem absolutely absurd that that I would have the faith to be able to step out and do what he's called me to do and let him use me in ways that I can't even begin to imagine if that's you this morning with me would you slip your hand up that's I want that I want that I want the faith to 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 not only be able to follow the absurd but to even hear his voice when he calls me to the absurd because it's, you can put your hand back down. But because you know what? The, the problem is when I hear his voice speaking the absurd, so many times I say, oh, that was just me. Oh, that was just a crazy idea. But you know what? His sheep know his voice. We know when he speaks. And even when it's absurd, God, give us the faith. Give us the faith. Father, you saw all these hands that were raised. And Lord, we want to be people of faith. We, we don't walk by our feelings. We don't walk by our knowledge even, God. We walk by faith. And we want to be people of faith. We, that's what, we want to be known as people who have faith in Christ. And, and I know the world hears that and they think we're absolutely crazy to put our faith in someone we can't see. But God, we, we follow the absurd. And I pray, God, that those in this room that have been pursuing the wrong things. Lord, let this be a turning point. And God, that, that in, even in small ways, God, that they would, we'd begin to pursue you. Lord, that we would fan the flames. You, you, Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, fan the flames. He didn't say, ask God to fan the flames. He said, you fan the flames. And so God, help us to make the choices that, that, that stimulate our affections for you and to begin to pursue those things. And those things, Lord God, that that rob us of our affections for Christ, God, I pray that we'd begin to let those go. And as we fan the flames, Lord, that the faith would grow. 
And as our faith grows, God, there are so many in this room, almost everybody in this room, we, we are saying, Lord, give us faith to be able to follow the absurd. So, Lord, speak the absurd to us. Individually, as a church, speak the absurd. And give us faith to, to act in obedience. Even though everybody else may be making fun, they, they, they made fun of Noah building a boat 500 miles from the ocean, a thousand times too big for his family. I know, Lord, he heard daily, uh, uh, daily uh, mocking and, and people saying things. And God, help, give us the faith to say, Lord, uh, we're not going to be swayed. We're not going to turn aside. We're, we're going to follow what you've told us to do. And we're going to keep building small steps at a time. Noah didn't build the ark overnight. But one day at a time, one step at a time, with small steps forward, we'll keep going toward what you're calling us to be. We thank you for what you're going to do. We thank you for the absurd things that you're going to do in this city. And God, when that happens, we're not going to take one ounce of credit because it's God who's doing the work. And we give you praise in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.